double tears. Oh, it's so sweet. Okay. Just a heads up, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13. It will be helpful to have a Bible this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some around. There are some just around the corner and here. There should maybe some under the seats. If you don't have a Bible or an electronic device where you can access Mark 13, probably helpful to have this morning. We are going back into Mark. We've just finished our blessed series for the fall, and now we're moving back into the gospel of Mark. It's a short gospel. It's very fast-paced. Mark um, moves through a lot of the first three years of Jesus' ministry quite quickly and then slows down his narrative and really draws it out over the final week of Jesus' life. So as we arrive at Mark 13, we are in what's called the Passion Week, the final day, the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. What we're going to be reading about takes place on a Tuesday, and we're actually going to steepen this passage for a few weeks. So I'm going to look at the whole, we're going to read and study a little bit of the whole passage this week. Then uh, Kevin Drieger is going to read and, and draw out some more implications of the passage. Then we're going to do a pastoral exchange between the sites. Then the following week, Kevin's going to do another um, Sunday looking at Mark 13. So we're going to be in Mark 13 for a bit. Um, and that, that's really important because there's a lot here, and we want to make sure that we're correctly handling the word and its implications for our lives. So each week what we're going to be doing is using this chapter as our main text, highlighting different aspects of it. Today I'm going to explore kind of three major ways of understanding or viewing or interpreting what's going on in this text, and uh, maybe also some common ways that it might be misinterpreted. And then we'll kind of progressively and slowly unpack the implications to Christian eschatology, which is a really big word that means the study of end things, and to our everyday lives as a Christian. That's where Kevin's going to end off on November 5th. Why, why bother? What's the point of, of digging into all this stuff? How, how is this supposed to impact my life as a disciple on a Wednesday afternoon when I'm at work or you know, after school with my kids in the daily grind? How does this all fit together? So I'm going to read all of Mark chapter 13, and uh, probably a good practice over the next few weeks to, would just be a few times a week just to read through it yourself, really familiarize yourself with it, because as you're going to notice, there are parts of Mark 13 that you may have, that you, in your experience, may have been emphasized more than others, but we want to get a whole sweep of the passage, because this is one unbroken extended teaching by Jesus. So it's not going to be on your screen, so you can either listen or follow along in the Bible. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And actually, Dan, I'm going to have you put up the picture. So this is a scaled version of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. This is the temple. It covers about one-sixth of the city. So the disciples are leaving this. And as they're leaving the temple and, and moving out of Jerusalem... They're just awestruck at the, at the glory of what this temple was, meaning its ornamentation. This is the second temple re, uh, built by, being rebuilt by Herod. It was pretty much constructed um, by the time Jesus was alive, but they were also adding all kinds of ornate, ornamental gold features to it. So it was always getting kind of an upgrade. As they're leaving, Jesus says to them in response to this, Do you see all of these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. 
as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Olives opposite the temple. So they've moved out of the temple. They've moved out of Jerusalem now. They're kind of across the way, and they're looking at this from a distance. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pangs. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and hand them, have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those days will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord did not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. And even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, eats with their assigned task, and he tells one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everybody, watch. The first book 
I remember seriously reading as a Christian was the book Revelation by Grant R. Jeffrey. And it was a book that focused on understanding how the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, is an end time, provides an end times timeline. You have to kind of do some decoding, but once you figure out how to read Revelation through certain things that Jesus said and maybe some strange, obscure texts in the Old Testament, it will reveal how the last days before Jesus' return are going to pan out. And so it was through this book that I got exposed to terminology and ideas that I kind of got obsessed with for about two years of my life. Ideas like the mark of the beast. What was it? What was it referring to? Who is this person that keeps coming up in all these conversations called the Antichrist? How close is Jesus' return? Are we living in the last days? Um, As we move towards 1999 and beyond, I don't know if any of you remember this, but one of the bubbling questions was, was Y2K going to usher in the reign of the one world government and the Antichrist? Does anyone remember the Y2K scare and they thought everything was going to collapse? And Yeah? Jesus' warnings in Mark 13 are almost always included when topics of the end times come up. When we're talking about the end times, again, I use the term eschatology, ology, study of, eschaton, last things, final things. So whenever any kind of Christian eschatological, people speculating about the end times, whenever it comes up, maybe not all of Mark 13, but kind of key texts in Mark 13 tend to get ported into the model, the, the argument. And parts of Mark 13 are often used as foundational texts, almost like proof texts. See, this is what Jesus said, therefore we're going to know this is how things are going to go. But while it might be tempting to jump into Mark 13 and read it through the lens of our preconceived ideas of how things are going to play out, whether those ideas are kind of very clear to us because we've done a lot of study and reading on this, or we just have a vague sense of, yeah, like I think I've read like some of the Left Behind books or wasn't there a movie and I think there's something to do with like tribulation, rapture, and there's, I don't know all of it, but I just know that things are going to get really bad and then Jesus is going to come back and there's like a rapture thing. So there might be kind of a stew of ideas that aren't perfectly clear. The problem is when we move into a text like this is that we aren't aware that we're reading the text through those lenses, which kind of causes us to amplify certain things. Oh, these are the things in the text that are really important. And these other things are kind of like, well, they don't really matter that much. Or they don't really seem to make sense within how we're seeing things, so we just ignore them. What we always want to do with a piece of scripture is steepen it long enough to understand, look at the whole thing, look at the whole context, and then ask ourselves the questions, what did it mean to the people who first, who these uh, either words were first given to, how do we properly understand that context? so that then we can say what might be an application for us today. So we want to understand the context of the passage. We want to understand how it would have been received, how these words of Jesus would have been received to those he was giving it to and the early church. And then once we establish what I will call some hermeneutical boundaries, which means rules of interpretation, we can't just pop into the Bible and say, oh, here's a verse that seems to me that, oh, that would make sense. I'll just pull it over here. We have to kind of say, what did this mean Uh, How is this meant to be interpreted by the first century church? And then we can begin to do the work of applying it to our lives. 
Now, we only have so much time. You can take entire courses in Christian eschatology. There are books and books and books that you could read for a long time. We're only going to be covering about three weeks of this between Kevin and I. So we're going to be looking at major themes that surface in the chapter that need to be addressed within the context of what does this chapter mean for me as a follower of Jesus in 2017. So there's going to be stuff that we can't get to due to sake of time. But if you have other questions, you can email me, you can email Kevin, and we'll try and do what we can as we move through this chapter to uh, give you other resources to go down. But this is, you can go down some deep, uh, far-reaching rabbit trails, but we just want to give you a framework so that you have a better understanding of maybe what's going on in this text and maybe what's not going on in this text. Okay, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to introduce you to three ways of interpreting Mark chapter 13. Broadly speaking, there are three interpretations or views to understanding and applying this chapter. I'm going to share each view. I'm going to share the evidence for the view. And then I'm going to establish kind of where I land personally. And then over the next few weeks, Kevin and I are going to explore how this perspective informs our understanding of discipleship to Jesus, how it informs our understanding of end times speculation. And so by the end of today, I'm saying all this to say it might feel like we're just getting started on Mark 13, and that's kind of by design. Uh, So we're really looking at three weeks in Mark 13, not as a standalone message. So this might kind of get the gears moving and we build some momentum and then we have to stop, but that's okay. So what are the three views? Well, I don't have any fancy names for them. I'm just going to call them A, B, and C. View A is probably the most common. And if... Um, I I would hazard the guess most people, this might even be the only view you've been exposed to as a Christian and broadly speaking as an evangelical Christian. This is the view that has the most amount of um, promotion behind it. This is the view that is tied into um, a lot of the end times books and theories that are out there, including Left Behind series This view, view A, believes that what we're reading in Mark 13 are Jesus' words to a future tribulation. They're pointing to a future tribulation that's going to occur more or less directly before Jesus returns. So Mark 13, what we're reading here in Mark 13, has pretty much everything to do with a future tribulation, future hardship and suffering that are going to happen in some kind of window before Jesus returns. And the evidence for this, the kind of the key grounding text for this view, is because Jesus himself says that in those days following the distress, this is verse 24, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then here's the key text. And at that time, men will see the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the heavens. So the interpretation uh, uh, process looks like this. Jesus is talking about this event that's going to happen when he returns. Jesus has not returned. Therefore, the context for how we understand this is dealing with things that are going to happen before he returns because Jesus seems to imply that these things are going to happen and then he's going to return in glory. He hasn't done that. So these are future events. 
So that's where this view grounds its hermeneutic or its main interpretive principle. And so this passage is thought to describe a final time of darkness and hardship before Jesus' return. And this is often tied, um, without getting into all the details, but it's often tied to concepts like the rapture, um, tribulation period, antichrist. Some of these things get pulled in from different parts of the Bible and different models that I think Kevin will briefly touch on next week. Now, this view, the implications for this view, the application, how would we apply this view um, in everyday life? Well, the first level of application would be to say, Mark 13 really has minimal reference, sorry, minimum relevance for any Christian who's not living in this final period. These are words of Jesus and warnings of Jesus and commands. We're going to find out that they're commands of Jesus in this verse, but they really didn't apply to the people he was giving them to, nor to anybody thus far of 2,000 years of Christian history. They really only principally apply to people who are going to be around right before his return. But again, because we don't know who that would be, Maybe it's helpful because we can all kind of imagine maybe we're the last generation. um, So there's kind of that movement of, well, maybe it helps us keep us on our toes, but it's still hard to know how to apply it because how do we know if we're living in these last days? One application that I think does happen with this view, and and I hear it all the time from people, is at least a, a, a surrendering to the idea that, well, I think the Bible generally teaches that right before Jesus returns, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Like kind of the basic timeline is things are going to be moving along, but then all of a sudden things are going to start getting really, really super, super, super bad, worse ever, 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 and then Jesus is going to come back. And so it can kind of move into this strange kind of duality of excitement where when tragedies unfold in the world, I've known people who get really, really excited about that. Because Jesus said, as tragedies and sufferings increase, we're closer to his coming. So it can create kind of a strange response from the church because we might presume what we're supposed to believe is to be kind of, not overtly, but kind of secretly excited and anticipatory as our neighbors might be saying, the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, but we know what's really happening. So we can kind of be like, famines, wars, rumors of wars. Yes, this is exciting. We're living in the last days. That's view A. Let's look at view B. And already, I want to be sensitive to the fact that there might be people who are inside their own heart and interiority a little shaken because they're like, what do you mean a view B or a view C? I've only ever heard of or been exposed to something that approximates view A. And again, that's be- there's all kinds of reasons for that, and, and we're not going to get into those today. But view A is the dominantly popular one in terms of the general ethos of the Christian subculture. But it is not the only view and the only way that Christians faithfully who love Jesus and take his return and the end times and Mark chapter 13 and all the passages where Jesus talks about and thinks seriously. I remember when I assumed that this first view world's going to get worse, a bunch of tribulation, rapture, a bunch of stuff, Jesus is going to come back. And I was trying to figure out all the details, but I essentially was like, that's what the Bible teaches. We're just now discussing the actual details of certain events. But the overall model, obviously, that's what the Bible teaches. I remember what it was like to sit in a classroom under a professor who calmly, clearly, biblically, exegetically 
took me through passages that were obviously leading to this conclusion and said, there's actually a different way to read these passages. And I remember how scary that felt to me because it was like, wait a second, we're not all on the same page? Like, this is a pretty big thing. Like, Jesus coming back, end time stuff, the importance of being saved before final judgment. Like, how am I supposed to understand this? And so I want to be sensitive, but also lead us into other views that hold strong interpretational evidence, meaning these aren't just strange theories cooked up by someone who just doesn't like view A. These come from people who have done their homework and say, I understand where view A is coming from, where you would see this all pertaining to a future tribulation, but I respectfully disagree because of being careful to exegete the text and to notice some things in the text. So what's view B? View B is the exact opposite direction of view A. View A says all of this was about something that's going to happen in the future, right before Jesus comes back. View B goes in the other direction. It says, actually, if you read the text in its context, it refers to everything in Mark 13. Refers to events that will happen within 40 years of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. One generation. All of it refers to events that happened within 40 years of Jesus resurrecting and ascending, so about 70 to 72 AD. And therefore, when we're reading Mark 13, all of it, we're reading history. We're reading stuff that has already happened 2,000 years ago. Now, for some of you, they might say, well, that's really strange. Where does this come from? First of all, what's the evidence for this view? Well, uh, proponents of this view would say, look at the context for the whole rant that Jesus goes on they're leaving the temple. The disciples are like, wow, look at these amazing buildings. Jesus says, yeah, there's coming a time where all of these stones, are, this, this whole thing is going to be raised to the ground. And the disciples ask him, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? There's a very specific context. Jesus, you just said the temple was going to be destroyed, which would have boggled their mind. This is the temple of the living God. So they probably pretty much assumed it was indestructible. And it was a beautiful, powerful, one-sixth of the city mega temple, biggest in the world. When is this going to happen? What what are going to be the signs that accompany that the end of the temple is about to be fulfilled? Now, we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. I'll talk about that in a moment. It happened during the Jewish revolt against Rome. So part of the evidence for this view would say, well, Jesus is responding. This whole chapter is in response to the question of when is that temple going to be destroyed? The question isn't, before you come back, Jesus, what are, what's going to happen? We know, you're, we know you're going to ascend. You're going to come back. Um, when you do, give us the timeline. It's when is that temple going to be destroyed? Also, in verse 30, Jesus himself says in one of the summation uh, verses, I tell you the truth. In the Greek, that's amen. That's amen. Jesus, the only recorded Jewish teacher in history to amen himself. He starts a sentence with amen. Normally you say something, other people amen. Jesus amens himself here. This is one of those things. He says, what I'm about to say, 
rock-solid truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Generation in the Bible is 40 years. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, just giving you straight up, within a generation, everything that I've just told you is going to happen. So therefore, the people of this view use those two kind of framing verses to say, we have to understand everything that Jesus is talking about here as involving the destruction of the temple. And therefore, Mark 13 and Jesus' words here are about the signs of the end as it relates to the end of the temple and of temple worship and of Jerusalem as the center of God's activity within salvation history. And so Jesus' words should be understood according to this view, predicting a soon-to-happen judgment against Jerusalem and the corrupt temple system that had become rotten and had nothing to do with God. And interestingly, even in this view, verse 26, at that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, is thought to refer to the cataclysmic nature of what happened when the temple was destroyed. So even that verse, which verse A says, that's clearly a reference to Jesus coming again again in glory, literally, bodily, with his angels. This view says, no, we have to nuance that a little bit. This is a more poetic, apocalyptic language to describe the destruction of the temple. Now, if you were to hold to this view, the application is that Jesus' words here are really only relevant to the immediate generation of Christians, but really less so to us. All of Mark 13 is essentially stuff that's already happened, and it was for that generation of Christians. So we can read it, but we basically read it as history. We don't, there's not the same kind of implication of this is meant for all Christians at all times. We, you know, it's kind of like, wow, they needed to hear this, but all this stuff already happened for them. So we can kind of read it and appreciate it, but we don't have to wrestle with what does this look like for us. So that's the second view. First view, Mark 13, all about the future. Second view, Mark 13, all about what's already happened with the destruction of the temple. Third view, view C. Full disclosure, this is my view. I'm not convinced by the uh, arguments for view A and for view B. In my opinion, they both have strengths. We've talked a little bit about the evidences for each, but they also ignore aspects within the chapter that I believe force you to reckon with how the passage speaks to, yes, the full destruction of the temple, but also Jesus' eventual second coming and the judgment that's going to take place when that happens. As he comes as the Son of Man to rule the nations and to establish a new heavens and a new earth. So how does this view work? This view is says Mark 13 is primarily focused on Jesus' prediction of what's going to happen within 40 years of his resurrection and ascension. That is the majority of what's going on here. In fact, verses 1 to 23 are very clearly all about events that did transpire in leading up to the destruction of the temple, which I'll talk about in a second. But Jesus also takes a moment and using, certain, using some precise language, distances himself and what he's talking about in terms of the destruction of the temple to use that future destruction to point to a greater judgment that will be coming when he returns. And that happens in verses 24 and following. When you read verses 1 to 21, 
Jesus lays down a bunch of things, right? He says, here's what's going to happen. People are going to come in my name saying, I'm he, I'm the Messiah. We have a, uh, a, a huge uh, a bank of evidence that there were a, a large amount of false messiahs that occurred after Jesus was resurrected all the way to the destruction of the temple. Many people saying, I'm the Messiah or I'm the Messiah Jesus, kind of come again, I am he. Jesus says, that's going to happen. There's going to be nation rising against nation. That happens. Kingdom against kingdom. We're going to find out that leads to the destruction of the temple. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. There's going to be famines. All of these things have historical precedent in the 20 years, well, almost all the 10 years, leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Jesus says, these are the beginning of birth pains. All these things that are happening, they're the beginning of of what's going to be a long process. You must be on your guard. You're going to be handed over to leaders, and that's what happened in this time to early Christians. Brother is going to betray brother, father against uh, child. Children are going to rebel against their parents, but you're going to have to stand firm. And if you do stand firm, you're going to be saved to the end. But there's also going to be this thing called the abomination, which desolates. And um, when this happens, let you know, flee to the mountains. I've given you a link on the bottom of your handout sheet where I think it's Rabbi Joseph Telushkin does a really good job of summarizing the Jewish revolts. You should read that because that will give you a sense of how all of these things, all of these predictions of Jesus happen and are fulfilled within a generation of him saying these things leading up to 70 AD. What happens around 70 AD? There's something called the Jewish wars that happen, 66 to 72 AD, about 30 years Uh, 35 years begins after Jesus was uh, resurrected and ascended to heaven. Jews finally revolt. They say, enough of Rome. Zealot insurgency. They seek to overthrow Rome. They win some battles. People get super confident and awesome. They drive Romans out of Jerusalem. Then they take over Jerusalem. And the zealots kind of uh, lead people on the inside of the walls of Jerusalem. And to make a long story, very, very short... Rome says, mm, yeah, no, that's not going to fly. You took us by surprise. Good for you. Now we're going to crush you and teach you to never, ever, ever, ever do that again. And they do it pretty successfully. They start in the area and begin marching forward until they essentially get to Jerusalem. Then they lay siege to the city for eight months. The Jewish people were prepared for this, though. The zealots were, well, the Jewish people were prepared. They had uh, stored granaries so they could outlast the siege because they saw the siege coming. But some of the zealots were these people who thought, we have no king but God. We have such strong faith. We don't need any other power other than God. What they thought is, you know what we can do? We're going to show God how much we trust him. We're going to burn all of our reserves of food because that will show God our faith Show God that we mean business, and he will come to our rescue against this evil pagan empire that surrounded us. So they burned the food stocks. Again, the average person didn't want this to happen. These were the zealots. They were kind of like bullies, and they were taking over and kind of ruling by martial laws, it were, everything happening within the city. Fast forward a few months, the Jewish Roman historian Josephus writes these words as a summation of what life was like inside of Jerusalem during this time. Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence 
and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The zealots searched people in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes or just pretending to be near death. Gaping with hunger like mad dogs, lawless gangs were staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, and so bewildered that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes, and the leather stripped off of shields." Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for four drachmas. Josephus even includes an account, and I won't read it, but you can search for it and find it online. Josephus also includes an account of a Jewish woman named Mary, not the mother of Jesus, a different Mary. He names her after her father. Uh, Of a Jewish woman who essentially, in a sense, goes mad with nihilism and roasts her baby and eats half of it to stay alive. The rest of the city finds out about this. The zealots find out about it, and everyone's just kind of horrified by this crime against humanity, the crime against nature, Josephus calls it, that this horror struck all of Jerusalem. At the end of the siege, Rome breaks through, breaks through the final wall of Jerusalem. There's three, I believe. Breaks through the final wall, pretty much raises everything to the ground, kills all the people, man, woman, child. Led by the Roman general Titus, who eventually will become the emperor, Titus leads the army in, wipes everybody out, brutal bloodshed, plants the standard of Rome in the temple itself, calls himself the uh, imperator, uh, the ruling one. And this is what at least some people, and I I think is, is a valid interpretation, see, and it's in this moment where the temple eventually catches fire, is raised to the ground, torn apart, but it's in that moment where he plants a standard that that is the abomination which makes desolation. He stands in the very presence of the Holy of Holies and he declares himself to be the ruler as an idolatrous pagan. And what's the desolation? The desolation is that the Spirit of God leaves the temple. God abandons his temple completely, not metaphorically. What Josephus describes when you read about the wars of the Jewish revolt is you know, as close as anyone could imagine to hell on earth. And I believe what Jesus is describing in verses 1 to 23 is all the events that are going to wrap around that event of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Because notice in verse 19, he says, those days of distress will be unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and they will never be equaled again meaning those days of distress will happen, history will continue to unfold, bad things are still going to happen, it will never be as bad as it was right in this moment. They will never be equaled. So Jesus even infers that these events aren't final events before he... There's going to be more things happening, but these are the apex 
of judgment and destruction upon the temple and God's people. But then in verse 24, and there's a wording in the Greek that indicates that there is a separation from what he's just described to something else. He says, he says, but in those days following the distress, the emphasis is on following the days of distress. In the days following this, what I've just talked about, there's going to be other days. And in those days, pointing to a future time, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, um, stars will fall from the skies, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And, that, and at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power will gather the elect from the ends of the earth. And so this seems to be indicating a different time that does parallel some of what's happening and going to happen when the temple gets destroyed. And the parallel, I think, I believe, Paul makes a little bit more clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where you see, you see a bit of a parallel between this judgment of God upon the temple which is meant to, this is going to happen, but it's also going to be a signpost to a future judgment. What is that judgment? Paul, uh, Timothy, and Silas writing to the church in Thessalonica, they write this. This is the church who's being persecuted by some pretty brutal Roman uh, emperors. They comfort them with these words. They comfort them with these words. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who are troubling you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Right? That's a, that's a callback to Mark 13, 24 following. Son of man coming in glory with his angels. What's going to happen? Jesus will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. In those days, Jesus says, following the distress, so time's going to continue, and then there will come a time where upon my return, and this language of the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, probably not meant to be understood literally, because this borrows from kind of poetic, apocalyptic language from the Old Testament, what we're supposed to feel is that when Jesus comes, because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, when he comes back in his full glory, because when he came the first time, he didn't have unrestrained glory. His divinity was masked, right? He emptied himself of a lot of his divine power. When he comes again, his divine power will be in full display, and creation will kind of buckle under the glory. His weight will be such that, to use poetic language, the moon won't give its light. Creation will respond. It won't just be like, oh, did you hear that Jesus came back? Yeah, I saw the thing on CNN. Like, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I heard that, like, let's uh, get some plane tickets and go over to the Mount of Olives. And it'll be a cataclysmic event. Not necessarily the end of the world, but a reshaping of the world because of the Son of Man's presence and power to rule the nations. And the point of this language is to clearly show that creation reacts and that all heaven, heaven and earth kind of has to reconstitute itself when its Lord and King fully returns and establishes his capital K kingdom, obliterates sin, brings judgment upon those who have resisted him, 
and glorifies and resurrects those who are in him and gifts them with eternal life. So again, this is the view that I hold because I think it holds together some of the best points of the other views without ignoring obvious contradictions. Jesus is mostly talking about events, but all these events that are going to happen here are meant to foreshadow a greater judgment. And so therefore, this verse has very clear application to the first Christians that it was given to, but it also has application to us. What are those two takeaways? Let me do this really quick. First takeaway is, I'll just borrow Jesus' words. Just be careful in your everyday Christian life, watch out that no one deceives you. Sometimes that deception might not be intentionally deceiving, but sometimes we can read stuff that, and we, and we see people throw Bible verses around and we're like, wow, that was super biblical. Throwing Bible verses around does not mean you're biblical. I could patch all kinds of stuff together and, and use quick talk and, and all kinds of things to make you say, wow, Jeff really knows this stuff. And I could be just spinning you a total yarn. We need to learn that context matters. Be, be graciously suspicious of anybody, including my sermons. When I say stuff, go back, be like the Berean church in Acts, who they heard Paul speak, then they went back and searched the scriptures and said, he mentioned this verse. Does that make sense in the context? Like, is he allowed to use that? Um, what hermeneutical principles? How, how is he pulling this together? Is this just kind of grabbing stuff out of a hat or does he have a plan of process? Is he correctly handling the word of truth? There's a phrase called context is king. And that's really important to remember. And sometimes we can get discouraged by that because we're like, well, I don't know. I don't know where to look. And oh, it seems like a lot of work. I'll just trust what this person is saying. That's a, that's, a, that's a danger. We can't be lazy as Christians. We have to at least be checking out maybe alternative views. And if you ever come across something that you're not sure about, again, email me and say, hey, do you have anything on this? Or you know, I've only ever been exposed to this view. Where would I read about different views? Or am I interpreting this verse correctly? You know, what do you think, Jeff? Not that I'm you know, the sole authority, but I can at least maybe give you access to different or get, put different resources into your hands. So just be careful that you're not deceived by people who can throw Bible verses around and make it seem like they can all fit together. Because, again, you might be dealing with someone who says, oh, all of Mark 13 is about this. But they're very intentionally leaving out certain verses that would lead you to think, wait a second, that seems like it would arguing against what you're saying. But I think the biggest takeaway, and this is where the verse is applicable, this whole chapter is applicable to all of, all of us, that the king is coming. And with the king, judgment is coming. Jesus is going to literally return and literally establish his kingdom fully. And Paul says, there will be punishment against those who do not know God or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now those are two very personal words. Paul does not use the word belief there. He says, who do not know God in a heart, soul, mind, strength, intimate way, or obey the gospel. That's interesting, because he could have said believe. He uses the term obey, which I think is helpful, because there's a lot of people like, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Like, yeah, I, was, I grew up in the church. I kind of believe this stuff. And they, what they mean is I intellectually agree with it. I, I give intellectual assent to that idea. It doesn't really connect to my life. I'm not cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not seeking to obey him in all things here and now. I'm not a genuine Christian in the sense of a Christ follower. I'm a cultural Christian. I kind of hold on to Judeo-Christian norms and I believe it's good to believe in a God and stuff. Paul says, 
there will be punishment against those who do not know God and who do not obey, in a sense, respond to, live into the good news of our rescue in Jesus. Belief in the way that our culture might think about it is not enough to save you from the coming judgment. You have to know Jesus. A personal relationship that expresses itself, not by saying, oh yeah, I'm close to Jesus, but I'm close to Jesus. And the evidence for that is every day I'm learning how to follow him, how to grow in him, how to live out the implications of the gospel. I'm inviting his Holy Spirit to transform my life and heart. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for him. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. Those aren't trite words that I'm using. I'm not using that just to gain currency with other people at church or my small group Bible study. That is real to me. The king is coming. Judgment and restoration is coming with him. But in Mark 13, Jesus is wanting us to see judgment is coming. Yes, restoration and judgment. He speaks to restoration in different parts of the Gospels. Here he wants us to feel the full weight of judgment is coming. And punishment for those who have resisted the purposes of God. And so to end, let me end with these verses knitted together. In Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, because today is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. And so reach out to him. Let's pray. God, as we move through your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just continue to enlighten our mind to understanding, that we would correctly know how to read and understand and interpret and then apply your word to our lives. And especially when it comes to some of these verses about end times where there's lots of ideas that are swirling around, lots of stuff that we can find on the internet, lots of books. Help us to be in submission to your book and to your words and to be spending way more time carefully looking at and studying at your word than the words of some of these so-called experts. Let's be really careful, God, and give us a spirit of sensitivity so that we can um, correctly handle your word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen.